0: Welcome to another Known Pleasures podcast. On this podcast, we've decided to do something just a little different. We're going to dip our collective toes into the icy waters of a BuzzFeed-style list. Mark, Patrick, and I have chosen our top five post-punk albums, which we will now foist upon our unsuspecting listeners. This is Known Pleasures, episode 21, our top five. With my top five, I didn't want to choose albums that um, I thought were the most important to the post-punk era. Um, and I also didn't want to sort of make my choices consciously varied, like having like, an electronic album and a Scar album and an experimental rock album. So in the end, I kind of just went with albums that I really liked at the time and I still enjoy today. So, um, I used to love today. <laughs> so love I, st- I, st- I still can't stop playing them today. <laughs> so that's basically my criteria.
1: Yeah, that's good. Well, that's different to mine and I'm maybe different to yours, so mm. that's that's already got me interested.
0: This is the thing. When I started doing this uh, started thinking about this list, I started thinking about, oh, what were the most important albums to the post-punk era? But um, I thought, no, this is kind of our favourite top five. Mm. And the people love a list... So people can, love a list, the top a list. top five, top ten.
2: Yeah, look, I think we should stop just patting ourselves on the back because everyone loves a list because there are some boring lists that some people hate. So. <laughs> yeah, but then
1: they love to hate them. So <laughs> that's the other <laughs> that's thing. right, yeah. Everybody
0: loves or a list because then might, you can disagree with it. think it's another tedious...
1: Clickbait. <laughs> well, why should we be any different to everybody else that, that <laughs> that's
0: does right. that? That's right. So um, I'm going to kick it off, guys. My number five is Wilder by The Teardrop Explodes.
1: Oh, my love. Well, see, I didn't see that coming. No, 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 no. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay. I'll just give you a bit of history. I won't rabbit it on about this too long, but I saw the... Sorry, t- sorry Graham, I'm still recovering. <laughs> you didn't think I was going to go there, this <laughs> year. <you? laughs> Both Mark and Patrick are yeah, looking at me out now like saying, <laughs> <laughs> really? No,
1: no, no. It's the best Teardrop Explodes album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No <laughs> doubt. <about that. laughs> there yeah. was only about two. Yeah, no, absolutely the best Actually, ones. there were more. But, it's uh,
0: certainly one of my favourites. Mm. I saw Teardrop Explodes at the University of Queensland, I think it was called, in 82. Actually, on setlist.com, it said Cloudland, but I am... No, it wasn't Cloudland. I am 99% I so. sure it was at Queensland Uni. Not long before that, I saw they played Colours Fly Away on Countdowns. Which I thought was an unusual single to be fair. Yeah, pushy. it was a weird single. I thought that Passionate Friend or Bent Out of Shape were better singles. But for me, this album is all killer, no filler. I love every song on this album. Front to back. Front to back. Lyrically, most of the time I have no idea what he's going on about. <laughs> the Culture Bunker, which is a song I love. It mentions the crucial three. Waiting for the crucial- that he had with Ian McCulloch and Pete, Pete Wiley. Wiley. And mm. The line, I stormed out of the culture bunker is a great line. I don't know what it means, but <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great lyric. Tiny Children is a gorgeous ballad, uh, just like Leila Khalid said, seems to be a love song to a convicted terrorist. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, 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 okay. I, I have no idea what made him write that song. There are so many great moments, but I think that sentimentality and nostalgia kind of play a part in this mm. uh, choice. Hearing the album brings back a lot of memories of the early 80s, but that is my number five. You can smile on me
2: with kisses You can smile on me with
1: dreams mm, That's a good it, choice. That's a very it, eclectic choice.
2: Yeah, yeah. It is because Teeter Explodes have been on the kind of periphery of our kind of thoughts in terms mm. of podcast material and so on. And I think Julian Cope, the singer, is an extraordinary individual and he's true. Memoirs, so amazing, far, an amazing read. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, like, he is an extraordinary individual, and I really like this album as well. Although it, it's not one of my faves, I really like. Uh, was it Seven Views of Jerusalem? Um, that was probably probably my favourite song. I saw them uh, in Melbourne at the CV Ballroom when they toured that year as well, and
0: I thought they were fantastic. And uh, yeah, well, Mark, don't go oh yeah. on setlist.com because it'll probably say it happened somewhere
1: else. Look, I love this album. I hadn't even thought of this in mm. my top five. So yeah. I'm kind of impressed um, that Graham pulled that one out of left field. So uh, good choice. But yeah, I, it's, it's all very personal. It, it's not going to be a definitive list, you know, according to whoever, because you'll never find that. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy with that one, Graham. You can, mm. you can have that. <laughs> you can have that one. <laughs> you <can> have a... <laughs> we'll
0: let you have that one. Not too much pushback on that one. Okay. No, no. no very good. Oh,
2: that's good.
1: In Addie. the meantime,
2: yes. Uh, my number five is uh, "Flowers of Romance" by Public Image Limited.
0: Wow! See, I'm already shocked.
1: Here, this is two
0: <laughs> shocks. Oh, wow. i, yeah. I mean, lucky I'm sitting down. <laughs> yeah. You know, mm. I'm, I'm sure you said you didn't like that album, but maybe
2: no, 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 no. It was it was it was the way you edited the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I really do not like this
1: album. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: right. Um, wow. Please yeah. go on. Uh, well, yeah, well, uh, my brother bought this album when it came out. I was sixteen or seventeen at the time, and I had mixed feelings about it because parts of the album I absolutely loved. There were some unlistenable songs: "Francis Massacre," "I'm Looking at You." Um, what about the ones you loved? Uh, the ones I loved: Jaime's Hymn." <laughs> I thought was was fantastic. "Go Back" was another one, and listening to it again. And with the benefit of headphones and modern kind of technology, I hear just what an incredible album it is sonically and it's got everything that I want really from a post-punk album.
1: Which it's got is Nick Lorne for one thing. Nick
2: Lorne, yeah, young 20-year-old <laughs> Nick Lorne producing it.
1: and Stepped in at the last minute, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah that's, that's right.
2: right. And it's ambitious, angry. Loud, funny, atmospheric, original, and it was a hit as well. And it has such a weird combination of medieval influences, Middle Eastern influences. John Lydon is his usual crazy, occasionally unmelodic self. And it barely hangs together song by song, but every song is kind of fascinating in mm. its own way. And as a reaction to the bass heavy, second edition metal box album that preceded it. You know, I think it's extraordinary to be an almost
1: bassless album. I think it is, isn't it? I, yeah. I think it's based on one track we yeah, said yeah, when we did yeah. the podcast on them.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the first song, Four Enclosed Walls, is pretty hard to listen to as well. It's basically drums and vocals and not much else. Big drum. <laughs> Overall, I just think it's such an extraordinary kind of sonic achievement and the sequence of tracks from the title track to Under the House, Jaime's Him," Banging the Door and Go Back, I just think is, you know, as a quintet. Of tracks is mm-hmm. uh, is just really something. By so, the way,
0: uh, Paddy, you didn't sort of elaborate on your criteria here. Did you want to say anything uh, uh, about well, that at all? Yeah,
2: well, only that I only chose one album by each individual band, so there might be some bands in for whom a couple of albums feature. Right. But for me, it's really my favourite five post-punk albums,
0: whether they were influential or not. Because I thought you would have chosen the first five Gary Newman albums. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's four left. There's ground. four left. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, yeah. Actually, so that's yeah, very that's good. good. Um, I, I'm pleasantly surprised by both of your choices already. So I'm, I'm glad that I showed up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this, this has been worth it so far. So I, I can go now.
2: Mm. So um, right. do you, chaps, have any thoughts about Flowers of Romance?
1: Only that that I agree with you that it's a huge leap from Metalbox and very ambitious. I think their first three albums are unbelievable and quite. Without precedent and probably nothing like them ever since, mm. and I don't agree that it's my favourite of their albums. Well, uh, Metal Box is probably Metal your favorite. Box is my favourite mm. of theirs, and I still, for the reasons that I would have, but having listened to it a year ago or so, whenever we did Public Image, mm. I appreciated it anew. I wasn't hugely into it at the time, but I can see why you like it and um, I don't begrudge its place in your top five. I think that's perfectly valid. I'm not going to try and change your
0: mind. (laughs) Yeah, I think I would have gone with Flowers of Romance had I been doing a list of probably the most important, influential post-bunk albums. I think that probably would have come up. Or maybe Metal Box. Mm. um, They were both
2: influential in their their own ways, mm. Metal Box and Flowers of Romance. And in terms of drum production, what Nick Lorne went on to do with other bands, including Mm. your Australian bands, your Midnight Oils and such, Mm. uh, yeah, it was very much about that kind of drum sound.
1: Well, it was the sound of the 80s, that drum sound, Mm. and that was a very early pointer towards it, along with Peter Mm. Gabriel's stuff as well.
2: To have the kind of audacity to have such minimalist... Music. Mm. We're just drums, guitar line, vocals, full stop. And it's like that's
1: <laughs> who does that. Yeah. Well, that yeah. was John Lydon in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: and you can tell on Jaime's hymn. I think there's a huge keyboard line at a certain point, like really epic, kind of classic, almost kind of Gary Newmanish or Joy Division is big, kind of wide, heavy s- synth line, but. It features for about fifteen seconds, and if I had been in that band, it would have been that sound from beginning to
1: end. Well, you would have been playing it, so yeah. you would have insisted on that anyway.
2: Yeah, no, that's <laughs> right, that's right, that's right. So the kind of discipline and the kind of art behind it hmm. is uh, is is really, really something. And yeah, when when we did the Public Image podcast, listening to Metal Box and uh, Flowers of Romance, it really made me appreciate the the kind of left field thinking of John Lydon mm.
1: and his fellow bandmates. Mm. Unfortunately, that that one was probably our least popular podcast. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. never mind. According to the numbers. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we won't it's spend too much time talking about No, no, things.
2: that's right. Mm. That's right. Yeah, so anyway, that's my number
1: five. That's your number five. Well, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, I'll tell you my uh, criteria for mine, and mine's a little bit more organised. I wanted innovation, musically and sonically. Uh, I wanted longevity, that it still sounded fresh today Mm. when I listened to it today, mastered, remastered. I wanted albums that moved the conversation forward. So when they were released is important. Obviously this is 78 to 84, so, you know, it's early days for for everybody, but that's the kind of period we talk about. Uh, Influence over subsequent bands and albums and expanding what was possible so that when I heard these albums I felt like, well, I haven't heard this before. Mm, and it's, yeah, if yeah. it's been done before, great, but I haven't heard it before yeah, yeah, yeah. and not by bands that I know. So with that in mind, I've picked as my number five, Black and White by The Stranglers.
0: We came across the West Sea. We didn't have much idea of the kind of it's waiting.
1: And you're probably not super surprised. <laughs> surprise, so yeah, surprise. Okay. okay. Uh, but let's remember this, released in May 1978.
2: It's pretty this, low, this number was, five.
1: This, well... There's another four, yeah. Yeah. May 1978 is their third album, so they've released um, three albums in a a year and a bit, produced by Martin Rushton, who'd previously done the Buzzcocks and then later on did Human League's Dare. So he was quite an an innovator in in terms of his sound. Mm. But I just think it just sounds so bizarre. It's hard to listen to it now and remember that when this came out, it didn't sound like a punk album. And this is May '78, so it's pretty early on. Um, Yeah, yeah. To me, it provided a roadmap out of punk, like what else could be done, like Mm. weird long solos, time signatures shifting, you know, progressions, strange lyrics about Sweden. Um (laughs) It, and it retained that threat of punk, that nastiness of punk that, mm. that appealed to me, obviously, but yet musically completely expanded the range and beyond.
0: They were dying to go there too. You, yeah. got, you got the feeling that they really wanted to expand.
1: Well, they were, they were top-notch musicians, as we'd said before in the podcast, and they actually really opened up on this album. Um, with the keyboards alone are just, like, amazing. And then the bass is even more prominent. And I was reading something about post-punk recently and it said it's all about the bass. And, I mean, I think J.J. Burnell is the beginning of all of that for the bands that we mm. love and talk about. We'd all look back to him as the the earliest sort of proponent of this domineering bass sound that's right up in the mix. So, you know, it's tracks like Nice and Sleazy, I think we'd agree, is, is quite a special track outside Tokyo. You know about watches. Some strange lyrics yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, I also like "Toiler on the Sea." I was a toiler on the sea.
0: I was a toiler on the sea.
1: And I love "In the Shadows" just for that kind of threatening, nasty bass and anything that's got a bass in it like that. I'm I'm in love mm. with it. And, and mm. it's my favourite Stranglers album. It's one of my favourite albums of all time. And I think we talked about when I was a young kid. Um, I wanted to be in a band like The Stranglers. I couldn't mm. play yeah, that yeah, kind of yeah. music as well as them. But I just found that there was nothing off the table, whereas a lot of other bands really struggled with that straight jacket of punk. And mm. I found that The Stranglers just meant, you know what, we're going to do whatever the hell we like. Yeah, no,
2: they just cut right through that.
1: Yeah, and that was kind of their attitude. And as I said, I'm sure you're not particularly surprised, but that's my... Um, my reasoning behind that particular one.
2: <laughs> well, it's only that it, it's only at number five. Yeah, well, the, uh, I'm sure
1: that you guys found this the same as well. I struggled to get down to five. Yeah, yeah. I had yeah. to leave out probably another five albums that I wanted to put in and then the order of them was, was really tough mm. as well. But once again, depending on what criteria you use, mm. that's yeah. that shifted the order for me. So, uh, cool. yeah, number five,
0: Black and White. Graham. Okay, well, let's move on to number four. My number four is Drums and Wise by XTC. We've basically spoken about this album in previous podcasts. I wanted to include this one as I kind of saw it as this transitional album between the two earlier experimental Mm. pop albums and the later where they became a bit more of a traditional pop band. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think I said before it was the kind of pop music that I wanted to write myself at the time from the classic um, making, plans for Nigel,
1: making plans for Nigel
0: to the wonderful lyrics of helicopter Patrick which you love the <laughs> Is it we're talking copy.
1: 1979 Graham
0: West is 1979. Still very early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's absolutely. such an experimental album. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually wrote here that uh, I love everything about it and it stands head and shoulders above other post-punk releases of 79.
1: Ooh, ooh, Graham, oh. I'll have to ask you to step outside <laughs> shortly if you keep and, that up. And, and,
0: and
2: <laughs> well, I'm about to contradict you. but uh, and, anyway. <laughs> and, and
1: I might as well later. <laughs> yeah. It was just one of those albums I played a lot. Did you see them live on that tour? I saw them
0: live on that tour ah. and that was when Dave Gregory had just joined. It's a really eclectic
2: album as well in terms of, like it is a pop album but, mm. it, but it covers a lot of ground.
0: Around. And it has, she's got to be obscene to be upheard. 10 feet tall is I'll, on. I love, feet love on 10 feet tall. I
1: love like right ten, like right 10 feet
2: tall. Well, any album with making plans for Nigel on it is a good album. And
1: that was a little bit of a hit in Australia because I do remember mm. seeing it on TV and kind of just going, what, what is this? Mm. The rhythm, the whole thing was such a strange feel. Yeah, it's so yeah. catchy. Mm. Yeah. Still
0: fan- catchy. Fantastic song. And mm. actually, um, Patrick, on our podcast you said you liked the song Millions. Yeah. And it, it was a song that um like I knew the song obviously from listening to the album, but I never had a close listen to it. And after you said you liked the song, I, it's it's now one of my favourite songs on the right, album. Right, right, yeah, just, just yeah. Going back and having a deep dig into that song, Patrick's stamp of approval. Yeah, it's yeah. all it took.
2: That's what it's all about. That's oh. what we all crave.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, after after he wrote off helicopter like he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't agree with that. But yeah, I
2: may have been a bit too harsh about. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: about about one. He wasn't uh, on his medication that yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I was
0: I was having a bad day the day we did the XTC podcast. <laughs> that's okay. All is forgiven. But, yeah, that's my number four, Drums and Wires. Mm. Good choice. Again, I'm very happy with that. How, uh, what are your thoughts on, on,
2: on
1: Drums and Wires? Well, it's the best XTC album. Mm. I would agree with you on that. Mm. I, I loved it at the time and... I still love it, as we said in the podcast. I could listen to it now. I love the production on. Who, who did it? it was uh, Steve Lillywhite.
2: Well, I, 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 think that's a fine choice, Graham, and I'm going to immediately contradict you <laughs>
1: with,
2: <laughs> with my number four, which also hails from 1979.
1: Wow! Well, well, I knew that was going to come up.
2: My number four is uh, "Regatta de Blanc" by Police. Ah. Another good un. from October 79. Can I just say
0: that that was almost one
1: of mine? I know it's an album that we're all fond of. Oh, um, above and beyond. But yeah, yeah. once and again, I would have had to include that in my ones that I left out. Right, okay, that's interesting. So I haven't put it in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing the clip to uh, Message in a Bottle on the Australian music show Countdown. When the album came out when I was 15 and I absolutely loved it and I'd loved Roxanne, I can't remember if I'd heard Outlander Stamore, the first album, but when I saw the film clip, particularly because the film clip communicated the energy of the mes- live, message. The live, had the mixture of the and live yeah, stuff yeah, and right, in the, in the right. dressing
1: room. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yep.
2: And you could tell how much they liked each other and how they, they'd never had an argument.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> and they never would. And they never <laughs> would. Yeah. So I kind of
2: loved the camaraderie yeah. that was yeah. imbued in the film clip, or well, that was certainly implied if not imbued. But as well as being unusually raw for the Australian equivalent of Top of the Pops kind of program a song like that. It was incredibly catchy. Mm. So I'd never really heard anything like it apart from Roxanne. Mm. So uh, apparently they were scraping around to find enough songs to fill up the album. Being their second album. Yeah. yeah. um, Mm. And so there was like a B-side from an earlier single, there were a couple of instrumentals. But any album which has Message in a Bottle, Walking on the Moon, Bring on the Night, Bed's Too Big, mm. on it as well as the... Death Wish. Death Wish. It's a great track yeah. as well. Yeah. Yep, yeah. and the two instrumentals as well, which I think mm. are both fantastic. they
0: have Grammy Award winning instrumentals. Oh, That's right. right. One of them. right.
2: There is a little bit of filler. It's not entirely killer, I don't think. But as an album, the kind of panache of the rawness of it, the spirit of it, they can get away with a couple of the lesser tracks. Like does do, does everyone stare, which I think is okay. But mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, a little bit of a like a B side kind of thing rather than a real kind of f- featured album.
1: But once again, an album track. almost a year or less than a year later. Yeah, yeah, there's, that's there's right. There's not a lot of time touring and and recording mm-hmm. to pump out an album like that
0: yeah. the following
1: yeah. year in 79. Yeah. Very and, impressive.
2: Yeah, and it was a massive hit, mm. springboard for their future success and as an album, you know, I could happily listen to it any time and, uh, yeah, it does bring back memories as well. As I mentioned from my point of view, it's about albums that I love and that gotta bring back memories and so on, but I think it does stand up independently as a really interesting, extraordinary album.
1: Totally agree. I'm, I'm happy with that choice. I've not disagreed mm-hmm. with anything mm. so far. <laughs> these These albums would all probably be in my other five, mm, if you right, like, right. if I had to do a ten. It was definitely the best French-named album of the year. Mm. <laughs> no disagreement Well, only there.
2: because um, they only released one album that year.
1: And Plastic, the Tron didn't put out an <laughs> album that year either. That's He'd right. gone into hibernation. He'd already had his hit and gone. <laughs> nice. Okay, my number four is probably not going to surprise you either and it'll certainly surprise... Um, some other people even less Secondhand Daylight by Magazine mm. of course, was yes. released in March
2: 1979
1: Produced by Colin Thurston Who'd previously engineered Bowie's um, couple of albums and later went on to do the first two Duran Duran albums. So he right. um, he went on to bigger and well not bigger and better things, different things.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah.
1: For me, I'm a big magazine fan. That's um, no secret amongst you guys. It's got John McGeoch's greatest post punk guitar work out of any of the bands he played in. For me, uh, Susie and the Banshees and mm. whoever. Uh, the, the solo on Permafrost is is worth the price of admission alone. <laughs> got a vast, dramatic kind of cinematic quality. The lyrics are very bookish and it was very anti-punk. It got slated by a lot of the uh, punk right. reviewers at the time about... You know what punk shouldn't be it had a kind of funk element which of course was probably a little bit unpopular as well
2: so was there anything in particular that
1: the reviewers didn't didn't like yeah yeah. well they were big fans of the first album real life which which got really good reviews and sort of set them up to sort of progress somewhere but i think this this kind of went a little bit prog for a few of the uh, Mm. reviewers and you know um howard devoto wanted to be contrarian difficult he didn't want to fulfill expectations so he made his lyrics quite obscure and kind of paranoid and and strange and hard to fathom. Uh, and some people called them Punk Floyd and said it was, it was more reminiscent of a kind of a prog <laughs> band, you know, with the, yeah, yeah. the kind of eerie atmospheric keyboards. But, you know, the heart of the album is the bass, is Barry Adamson's bass. He, of course, went on to play with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. But that chorus-based sound mm. is, is a huge influence on subsequent post-punk albums and musicians. It's always raining the border. It seems like a movie to me. The whole album feels like a movie. It's kind of a Cold War movie. It's kind of off putting and kind of scary, and you don't really know what's happening. Mm. Just, you know, for example, Feed the Enemy starts with a weird fade in keyboard before it kicks into this kind of menacing bass drum thing. <laughs> As I said, Permafrost is still one of my all-time favorite songs. I kind of get chills when I hear that <laughs> that solo building and building at the end. Back to Nature, The Thin Air. I just love this album. I, I I can listen to this album now it still gives me, you know, feelings of when I was, you know, 15 or 16 as well and it was a very very influential album for me. And I ha- I feel like it had influence on a lot of other bands as well, particularly bands like Radiohead and people like that that really yeah. got it. But it wasn't particularly popular at the time and kind of sealed magazine's fate as the guys that weren't going to come out of punk. Because yeah, <laughs> yeah. remember, he'd been in the buzzcocks, so there were, a lot was, was mm. expected of Howard DeVoto. And it hasn't lost
2: anything in translation over the years?
1: Not for me, no. I still get goosebumps when mm. I hear it now. And it's, it's not their most popular album. The third album, Correct Use of Soap, is, is deemed to be their best, but it's not for me. This is more ambitious and it's almost like this is what we're going to do. And yeah. some people didn't like it. And as I said, it was anti punk in many ways, which is an unpopular thing to do. But well, it had
0: slow songs, too. It wasn't Howard DeVoto, he didn't seem to be a big fan of punk.
1: Well, no, he wasn't. But he, anybody that's in the Buzzcocks that was, you know, did Spiral Scratch and all the rest of it is yeah. still a prime mover in the early days of punk he was just one of those people that was bored and moved on very quickly
0: yeah. and
1: anything that was expected of him he wouldn't do like when they were a magazine performed uh, shot by both sides on top of the pops he decided he was just going to stand still and do nothing mm. which kind of annoyed people because they wanted him to jump around and do a punk thing, yeah, and he yeah. didn't, because he was like, "I'm not going to provide entertainment for people yeah. the way they want. I'm going to do what I want to do," <laughs> and that kind of appeals to me as well. Yeah, about yeah. his whole career, contrariness. Yeah, very much so. Mm. And, you know, and like I said, his lyrics. You know, he, he's using Dostoevsky's references. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And absolutely. difficult, obscure, paranoid kind of lyrics. Yeah, which yeah. Right, not angry against the world lyrics.
2: Yeah, but know? yeah, if you're if you're angry, ill, and ugly as sin, you know that's a <laughs> that's a reasonable. St-
1: like that's a good start.
2: Springboard or floorboard. <laughs> yes. For, um, <laughs> nice.
1: yeah. Yeah. So that that's my choice of Secondhand Daylight. As I said, may not surprise you, but I, um, and even the cover, I love the the green cover with a kind of head on a, a stick or something. It just kind of, I don't know what it is, but just still moves me. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's my number four. Yeah. No, I
0: love that album too. Um, my number three. Top uh, three. we We're in the top, top three. Top we're already at bronze the three. Bronze medal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, my number three album is the first Psychedelic Furs album.
1: Oh, another out-of-the-box. Out-of-the-box.
0: Released when? 81. Mm. So you've jumped two years ahead of me already. Ah, my choices aren't chronological at all. No, 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 they don't have to be. No, not at all. So basically when I first heard Sister Europe, it gave me goosebumps, so um, it must have been... Heart thumps? Yes, it made my (laughs) body jump. (laughs) (laughs) That was a reference to the Australian 80s pop singer... I think Chris- Christie. She had a hit single here in the uh, in 1979, I think, with a song called "Goosebumps." She gives me goosebumps, heart Please don't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, she was queen of pop. She wore little shorts. That's what I remember about her. Well, that might she, be a sexist thing to say. Let's leave that's it right what there. I remember. I thought
0: she. I thought she wore satin. Those tight. But they satin. were little. Oh, okay. They were tiny. Okay. It wasn't an itchy bikini, but it was close. <laughs> We're making Patrick. Uh, uncomfortable. Okay, in no <laughs> way are we getting off track. <laughs> <laughs> and on to the Stranglers. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. It had a saxophone in it, which um, I don't normally like. It was just a great song. I must have heard it on Triple Z, I guess, in, in mm. Brisbane. thinking, yeah, what the hell is this? It's his voice. Is it Richard
1: mm. Butler? Mm. I yeah. love Richard his Butler. voice. It's
0: got a great he's a Bowie-esque voice. Yeah. Mm. But he's the sort of guy that
1: you you would he'd come into the room audition for the band and you'd go, That's the guy. Yeah, he's yeah, got yeah. kind of a smoky voice. It's mm. really evocative.
2: And he had a good look as well.
1: Yeah, yeah he did. Yeah. Where were mm. they from? They're not, they're not a London band. They're not. No, a, then I, could they be a Liverpool band? So. I should know more about
0: this. Yeah, if we, if I'm, I'm we going to have to yeah. find if we were, out for you. If we were <laughs> yeah. doing our Psychedelic Furs podcast, I'd know all You'd this. You'd know yeah. all this stuff. You should know this anyway. But, um, and with Richard Butler's crooning voice weaving in and out of the song, it was just mm. really. It was a hypnotic song. I wanted to share a quick embarrassing story about me seeing the Psychedelic Furs in Brisbane. Oh, okay. End of 82? I think, I think he, End of 82? Yeah, it was in 82. Hmm. Uh, I think you might have been there too, uh, Mark. They're from London, by the way. (laughs) Damn. There goes all of my Scouser (laughs) jokes. (coughs) Mark is Googling as we record. No, no, it's all up here, mate. It's all up here. Basically, uh, my favourite song on the uh, first album was a song called Imitation of Christ. And um, I saw the Psychedelic Furs at Festival Hall in Brisbane. I was was right up against the front of the stage and I was uh, chanting for them to play this song You but were I, chanting uh, Yes I was <laughs> Imitation Imitation uh, I don't I don't often chant No But in this case I did Actually no, I was I was calling out for them To play the how song w- were, what, what was the rhythm Of how you were doing it Was it <laughs> yeah, Imitation that's what I wanted. Okay.
1: Maybe, ima- Imitation <laughs> maybe, yeah, I should, uh, maybe I shouldn't Have used the word chant
0: <laughs> uh, Yeah I was calling out For them to play the song But it wasn't until r- Later I realised I was shouting out Impersonation of Christ <laughs> Over here, impersonation (laughs) of Christ. could you not? I, I, I've laughed about this for many years later because I thought there. Are, I was asking Richard Butler to do an impression. <laughs> <laughs> do Christopher Walken?
1: Did he? Did he? Did he respond to you at all or acknowledge you? No, no. no? I, I don't think anyone anyone mm. heard me. No. <laughs> to tell the truth, a, a gap formed around you.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jack Nicholson. He'd <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> be like, do an. Impression. Michael Caine
1: doing an impression of Christ. Comedy clubs down the road, mate. <laughs>
0: Richard Butler goes up to the microphone and goes, has anyone ever wondered what it would be if Christ went into the DMV? I think it would sound <laughs> something, something like, like this. <laughs> oh, but, um, I wasn't with you at that gig, I'm, I'm
1: happy to say. Yeah, I was I mean, there but I was somewhere else. You, you, you probably
0: heard me and you moved away. <laughs> you moved away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, but, yeah, I've always found that <laughs> to be hilarious. <laughs> Back to the album. Mm. There was some actual some driving punk songs. So they were a classic punk band. Early on. But there was also some atmospheric songs, which is, as I said, Bowie esque vocals that um, gave the songs and the band a real signature, I think, uh, which was discovered by the rest of the world uh, in later years with an American teen movie, I think. Uh, once Pretty in Pink was really And Love My Way. Yeah, yeah Love My Way. Yep. Big both big hits. Yet yeah. another band ruined by... John
1: Hughes? John, John Hughes.
0: <laughs> no. Oh, come on. No, no. I won't have I won't a, have a that's, word said against John Hughes. Day. That's
1: another podcast altogether. <laughs> yeah. Look, I'm happy with that choice, another eclectic uh, one. I'm, I, yeah, yeah. I feel I, kind I, of boring I, and mainstream with my choices so far. I'm yeah, going to yeah. I'm gonna have to furiously
0: scribble out everything and start again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't change as we go. No, okay.
1: okay. I
2: saw Psychedelic Furs when they toward, I seem to remember them uh, Richard Butler saying something about I hope no one's going to be requesting imitation of Christ.
1: Here's my impersonation of Christ. <laughs> 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 Anyone got a hammer? <laughs> Is there a carpenter in the house? A carpenter here. I <laughs> need some nails. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nailed it. So it was, uh, and it was an excellent gig. It was mm. at the Pier Hotel in Frankston, at the very outer reaches of Melbourne.
1: That's weird because uh, they yeah. played Festival Hall in Brisbane, which yeah. was the sort of premiere. Then Yeah,
0: you Love My Way had become a hit.
1: Oh, when we saw them? Yeah. Well,
0: yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm a fan of the
2: furs. What's interesting about them is they did nail their colours to a particular mast by calling themselves the psychedelic furs. They're mm. kind of asking for trouble mm. in a very specific post-punk environment where mm. they were kind of blowing a raspberry to the media to say we're going literally going to use the word psychedelic in the band But they
1: were also saying we're big Velvet Underground fans, mm. obviously. Like, mm. what was it called? Venus infers Velvet Underground. Yeah, yeah. So I think yeah, that yeah. that was their their big, their yeah. look even. They looked very much like mm. the uh, Velvet Underground.
2: Yeah, so they're a fine band and often kind of relegated to the margins mm. in terms of post-punk discussions.
1: Yeah, look, they might be worth, you know, further discussion down the track, but I'm glad to see them in your top five, Graham. Yeah. Yeah. Patty.
2: So, number three. Bronze medalist. All of the uh, shocks are out of the way, and it's It's where. It's (laughs)
1: straight. I'm not even (laughs) going to say what it is, what I think (laughs) will be coming.
2: Okay. It's Yawnsville Central from now on. (laughs) Uh, Faith by the Cure. Number three for me. I was 17 when this was released, and as a slight, reflective, sensitive lad... You've changed, man. I was an absolute Look sucker. at you now. <laughs> Look at me now, the beefy... <laughs> the beast that you are, <laughs> yeah. angry gym dude. Yeah, the angry, substantial fellow that I am these days. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was an absolute sucker for an album like this. Uh, like I would have fallen for it no matter how bad it was so it's just as well that it happens to be brilliant. <laughs> um, it's often described as a depressing album and with songs like Funeral Party it's that's understandable and they did record it just after Robert Smith singer Robert Smith's grandmother had passed away and the drummer Lol Tolhurst his mother was dying so you can see why it would have a certain kind of funereal kind of aspect to it but for me what i hear most of all with this album is the beauty of the music and the simplicity of it just so kind of sparsely arranged but still kind of epic in its own way and from the opening bars of Holy Hour, I think it's extraordinary that there's only bass, a bit of synth and pretty standard drum beat, but it doesn't sound like anything on earth. 81? April 81.
1: Weren't they all on heroin at this point?
2: I don't think so. No? (laughs) Because that would explain it. (laughs) No, no, they were on Newcastle Brown Ale, (laughs) as I I, I
1: remember. That's expensive, that would (laughs) make you
2: kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, that's right, but the year after Faith was released... Me, my brother and a friend decided to form a band and our first rehearsal was in the basement of a church, obviously. And our friend Alastair, Al set up candles all around the room and in this murky, dank atmospheric space, the first song that we, as a potential band, ever tried to play was holy hour.
0: Oh, nice. So
2: that's a kind of an indication of where that album was. The impact it had in my that. headspace and yep. in the headspace of my contemporaries. And so, yeah, like I think this album is amazing, and it's not regarded as like the classic Cure album, but but for me, it's it's, it's my fave.
1: It's my favourite Cure album, but I'm just going to throw in a little spanner Oof. to say that I think it's heavily influenced by something else, other music <laughs> that came prior to that. I whenever I hear this album, I keep referencing a Previous a album. particular
2: band? Who you? A might particular band
1: or a particular album? But I love it, nevertheless. Mm. I love Primary. Um, I love that album. I saw that tour in '81, yeah, as yeah. probably we all did.
2: I had my school social. Editing. Oh, that's
1: right. I think we, we discussed that. Well, <laughs> I was front and centre, centre with my friend Curtis for this gig and it was at like a Tuesday night or something. Mm-hmm. We were still at school. But it was a fabulous gig and it was at Festival Hall again. Sound was amazing. Simon Gallup was just rock star extraordinary. Mm. He still is and he hasn't aged a minute since then. Mm. He still looks incredible. I was
0: at that.
1: You were at that as well? I think I saw you were I doing embarrassing. Boys again. don't weep. Boys don't <laughs> weep at the front over the here. Girls don't cry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I I love this album. And, once again, mm. it would be in my top five albums of ones that... Yeah, the I, other top five. Oh, the other top five, yeah. Mm. Good choice. Mm. Who produced it? Because I always love to know. Mike Hedges. Mike Hedges. Okay.
2: Mm. Who they had wrested control from... I've got his name, Chris Perry, mm-hmm. who was the label owner, who had been heavily involved in the first couple of albums. I think I think Seventeen Seconds, as well as the Three Imaginary Boys, was the first album. Yeah, so I think Mark Hedges maybe had like a relatively low kind of key impact, but the simplicity of the arrangements. I mean, a, mm. a five-year-old could have played all of the keyboard lines. The drum beats were really basic for the most part, because Lol Tolhurst was no no ginger
1: Baker Baker. Um, I don't think he was any kind of baker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Does it really matter was, what he did? For just it? lol told us.
1: <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, simplicity. But, uh, yeah, so the production was fantastic on it, and the, yeah, but there's mm. something about it, like primary. That it's nothing. Nothing goes on in it, that's it's mm. incredibly catchy mm. and and you know urgent. Yeah. I would put that and uh, 17 seconds together. I'd I'd find it hard to split those two as my yeah, favorite Cure me too. I don't know why people go on about disintegration. I'm not going to digress, but. I couldn't give a fuck about disintegration. I don't understand what the appeal is. Well, we have got a warning, language warning on there, yeah. so we've got to give them something to listen to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. faith in Certainly, yeah.
2: the album Disintegration from 1989 is among the most overrated albums of all time. And I have to Thank disagree you. with Stan or Kyle on that episode on of that South episode, Park yeah. <laughs> when he says Disintegration is the best album ever.
0: It is not Stan or Kyle. No, you're, you're a
1: cartoon. You don't I, I, know what you're talking
0: about. <laughs> you you're a caricature. Yeah. I'd like to throw my support behind disintegration because Would it you? has... Can you do that? I'd Can like you throw your support um, behind disintegration? Well, I could have thrown my support mm. behind pornography, but I... It's <laughs> <laughs> too late for that. <laughs> I'd, um, I think it's got love song
2: on it, doesn't it? Yeah, but let's let's not get sidetracked. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I like Unless this
0: I, is
1: your number two choice,
0: <laughs> we're not going to talk about this let's, yeah, like, let's just, not just, go I, to
2: 1989.
0: I no. just want our listeners to know <laughs> that, mm. I, that I'm stepping away from these. Two yeah, guys. well, yeah. we we know where I stand. <laughs> Patrick and I are on the same side here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I don't want our Cure fans to rise up and
1: no, no, no that's we're, right. we're saying Patrick's put the Cure at number three. Yeah, number three. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't get much better than that, boy. It does. No, but no. number three pretty good.
0: Yeah. No,
1: that's <laughs> right. That's right. So Mark. Well. Um, I'm going to throw in number three for me. Gentlemen, take Polaroids by Japan. October
2: 1980.
1: Bold choice. Produced by John Punter, who previously worked with. Uh, Roxy Music and Brian Ferry. I think he might have worked on Let's Stick Together, the solo album. I've chosen Gentleman because it seemed without precedent when I first heard it. Mm. Mm. I first heard the single uh, "Gentlemen" Take Polaroids on a show called Take Five on the ABC, saw it and heard it, and I couldn't relate to anything about it. Like I Mm. didn't understand the look that Sylvian had. The music was this kind of rich universe that I had never heard before. The whole album is just like nothing I've ever heard before. Mm -hmm. I know that they had been around before and Quiet Life had sort of hinted at this, but it's got a real cinematic quality. The fretless bass was probably the first time I'd ever heard that, Mick Kahn's bass. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed to offer this sort of vision of unlimited horizons of travel and art and culture and exciting things to a, a 15 year old or whatever I was in 1980 um, relax and swing mm. uh, methods of dance taking islands in Africa there's not a bad song on it mm. uh, and it, it it's kind of the most different of the five albums I've chosen and Japan you know some people would say I'm not a post-punk band mm. but but I think they came out of the same kind of ground and they they just went somewhere on their own completely uniquely. And it, yep. I think as we said in the podcast, no one's done what they did mm. since. No one's ever copied their sound or been able to, and I don't think anyone ever will. Mm. So um, Gentleman is this, is their superior album over Drum for me.
2: Yep.
1: Um, and, yeah, once again, I could still listen to it now. It's extraordinary. And mm. 101
0: new romantic bands. Heard yeah. that
1: album. <laughs> well, their time came, right? They were they were mocked and kind of ridiculed mm-hmm. up until that point, but all of a sudden in 1980, people wanted to see and hear that. Yeah. and they uh, they had more success with the following album, but but this to
0: me is their their high point. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I think on our podcast, we the three of us agreed that yeah, yeah. Polaroids was the album. Mm. Yeah. Does it does it fit into the what yeah. we're talking about? Yeah, looks, um,
1: yeah.
2: I absolutely adore this album, and the only reason that I didn't put it in my top five post-punk albums is that kind of grey area of whether it is post-punk or not. And I think you can argue that it is and you can argue that it isn't. For me... Guess what I'm going to do. Yeah. (laughs) But, (laughs) yeah, I mean, from my point of view, it felt like it was coming from a slightly different source, but I can see why you would argue the opposite. But uh, as an album, I think it is... Fantastic, And mm. it is so alien. Mm. Like, it is from outer space in a way that Gary Newman wasn't from outer space in the same way hey, hang as on. Japan <laughs> were from outer space <laughs> because gentlemen take Polaroids, what
1: the hell does that
2: mean? Mm. I still don't know. I'm 55 years old and I still don't know what it
1: means. Mm. So... And But the sound of it was completely from outer space too. It was... Super lush, but but that mm. had nothing that I could compare it to. People say Roxy music, I don't hear Roxy music in there.
0: No, that no, like. like people think that David Sylvian was trying to sing like Brian Ferry, but when you listen to the music, it was nothing. No, l- I don't uh, think uh, so, mm. at not at all. And I mm. said, who, who was using fretless bass in anything? Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) fast forward a few years and everyone
1: was. Everybody was, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the drumming, I love the drumming. It's got such a swing. It's got such a a kind of cool feel to it. Mm. Really tight but intricate drumming, beautiful. and
2: just really difficult to to get your head around. Like Mm. Swing, the song Swing, Taking Islands in In Africa. Africa. Taking islands in Africa. Just some... Weird drum
1: Beautiful. So, no oh, argument fantastic. there. Happy with my, my no, no, number. We're we'll all that one. Beautiful. Mm. All right, Graham, over to you. Getting there. Getting close.
0: Number two. Oof. I'm getting so excited. <laughs> <coughs> my number two album is Entertainment by Gang of Four. Well, I think there's
1: some thunder stealing going on here. Oh, mm, maybe. <laughs> Entertainment, the first album. The first album. Okay. So others, others, might,
2: others might say other Gang of Four albums. They
1: might. They might but do. it is a popular choice. <laughs> and given that they're playing very soon in Sydney,
0: well, by the time this comes out, they'll have been and gone. But That's they're right. playing the entire album on this tour. Yes. <laughs> My second choice is um, being paid for by the touring company. <laughs> no. Well, we did interview Andy Gill, so he's <laughs> obviously right. slipped you a fiver for That's this right, one. Yeah. He's not suffering. Andy Gill? As you know, the, it's the gaps what rocks. Um, <laughs> after the frenetic four on the floor of, of a lot of the punk bands, the Gang of Four came along. They seemed to keep the aggression and the politics of punk, but it just seemed a little funkier. Andy mm. Gill's guitar was syncopated, and mm. I really love that.
1: Well, the bass lines are great too.
0: Yeah, yeah. There yeah. are bass lines. Well, there was uh, Dave Allen. Dave Allen. Who also was a comedian. And comedian I think, with a <laughs> m- missing finger, He
1: busy man. <laughs> yeah. How he played the bass with that missing finger, I'll never <laughs> That's know. Right, yeah.
0: He had a wonderful um, Irish accent. He used to tell jokes while sitting on a stool at the BBC. (laughs) (coughs) Um, When he wasn't playing in Gang of Four. Yeah, when he wasn't in Gang of Four. Uh, but it's no wonder that Dave Allen went <laughs> 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 anyway. <laughs> waiting for Patrick oh, to get back. that, that, that was a slow burn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, he wasn't listening.
2: <laughs>
0: yes, I know. I can—I can see a dead horse. I can hear flogging. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was trying to say was that it's no wonder Dave Allen went from Gang of Four to Shriekback, who were another particularly funky post-punk band.
1: Why would you choose entertainment over other Gang of Four albums, going? That's my question to you. This came out what seven. 78 yes. Entertainment, correct, yeah. okay.
0: So I Like You, I think had... I Sol- Like You Too. <laughs> <laughs> you Too is your number one pain. I, comma, like you, had Solid Gold. I think Solid Gold was my, my first Gang of four Album. It was, mine, yeah. I may have listened to Entertainment a few years later, but I guess when I listen to them all now, I really like songs like Damaged Goods. I just think that is a, a classic post-punk song. Mm. Your kiss so sweet. Your sweat is so sour. There's a song called Not Great Men where they argue that history isn't made by great men, which I don't agree with. <laughs> so you like the song despite Ooh. disagreeing with the sentiment. <laughs> a, I mean, you know, Winston Churchill. the fury. Winston Churchill was a great man. Try and tell oh, me Winston He was a Ch- bit of an arsehole. <laughs> it's not made by great men. It's not made by great men. <laughs> <laughs> but he made history and I, he was a great man. Guns before butter. Pro-gun, anti-dairy. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Anthrax. Oh, uh, Anthrax which, is a great song. Which was a song that we used to hear on Triple Z all the time, which mm. is a radio station that we refer to many times on their podcast. Brisbane's Finest? Brisbane's Finest, absolutely. Yeah, I, I just I just really love the album. And uh, even though I guess you guys would probably think that I might like the, uh, the later more commercial ones, which I do love. Yeah. I love hard and... Uh, uh, songs of, songs, of, the songs of the Free. Songs yeah. of the Free. Was that one of those? Mall was Mall. one of them, yes. Mm. Yeah, But in a post-punk context, um, I just. Entertainment is the one. Entertainment is the one. Well, well mm. you'll you'll
1: get no argument from 99% of the post-punk audience out yes. there about that
0: one. And as Patrick suggested, we are going to see them very soon. Yes. Mm. Playing that album. Playing that album. Patty, how do you feel about. Graham's choice. I'm a fan of Gang of Four. They didn't figure
2: really prominently for me at the time. It was more songs I would hear on to name check the Melbourne radio stations 3RRR and 3PBS. Uh you know, when I was 16, 17, 18 and I would hear songs like Anthrax and you know, Your Damaged Goods and so on and I would love them, but that album I can't remember anyone ever playing that album at any party I went to for instance. No, no, as our friends were as a it. 17, 18, 19 year old, we were sort of more focused on the sort of more atmospheric side of things and the hsc a, yeah
1: and
2: <laughs> yeah and that yeah so i think gang of four are just about the most influential post-punk band of all time and i think their music is fantastic i don't really separate it into the albums um, mm. entertainment solid gold and so on because because i wasn't listening to them like that i was hearing a song here and a song there but uh, yeah i think it's a good choice no well, argument
1: happy with that okay. we haven't crossed over once yet
2: no, I know, but we, we may be about to in terms about of to.
1: bands, if not Bands albums. is fine. I mean, you'd be surprised <laughs> if we didn't. Paddy, your number two choice, mm. top five. Yes. Can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> I haven't heard that one. I love that album.
0: Love will get you like a case of
2: And that's something I don't want to catch My number two album is New Gold Dream by Simple Minds. uh, September 82, which is a difficult... Difficult year? Difficult in terms of like it's just at the very kind of cusp of what is post-punk and what isn't post-punk. Sonically, you could say, well, the Roxy Music Avalon kind of aspect potentially, although they recorded it about a month after... Roxy Music's Avalon came out, so be that as it may. For me, having listened to a lot of The Cure and other sort of slightly kind of depressive type bands over the years, your Bauhaus and such, it was a complete revelation to me to hear New Gold Dream and the sheer optimism and the brightness, the feeling that the world could be a better place, could be, it sounds trite, but... For me, as a a 17, 18-year-old, I was pretty set on the idea of being miserable pretty much 24
1: hours a day. (laughs) For the rest of your life. And
2: making sure that the world knew about it in my poetry. (laughs) Ah, yes. (laughs) That's the place for it. (laughs) Yeah. But New Gold Dream as an album, the production, the Mm, songs, the sound. It's very lush, isn't it, it? It made you love again. It did. I believe learned, in love again. Lo- it made me believe in love again as an 18 year old. Yeah. So, all <laughs> the my second time around. <laughs> That's right. But it was also quite arty and peculiar. So, mm. songs like Promise You a Miracle, Glittering Prize, the two opening singles.
0: Shadow, shadow light.
1: Certainly neither of them had a proper chorus. No, they're not really pop songs, but they were sounded great on the radio. Mm. They sounded bright... To me, this album heralds the beginning of the optimistic period, which I'll speak about. Mm, This kind of post-punk period was almost drawing to a close in Mm. some ways, and then the new pop was starting to come out, which we've talked about. I mean, I'm not equating these bands, but you know, your haircut 100, ABC, Mm. Simple Minds, Heaven 17. There was a kind of optimism in the air and a brightness. Adam and the Ants, Mm. The Human League. There was a kind of joy again after this kind of really heavy period yeah, of, of, yeah. of music and I think New Gold Dream is,
0: is a fa- fantastic example of Less it. division, more joy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's a T-shirt and, for you. And
2: from the point of view of an Australian, I do like the role that Australia played in the New Gold Dream album in that they had an extraordinarily successful tour of Australia supporting Flowers slash Ice House mm. and the first song they wrote after they got back home was Promised You a
1: Miracle. <laughs>
0: To
1: fits our and dedicated to Ivor Davies.
2: Well, was was it dedicated to no, I Ice House singer up. Ivor Davies? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Jim Kerr has said I don't think it's any coincidence that the first song we wrote when we got back from Australia was as catchy as "Promise You a Miracle." They'd mm. got a sense, courtesy of the reception they received in Australia, that you know oh. maybe we can be big. Mm.
1: And if only they'd stayed with that idea and not run with it <laughs> too much further.
2: Well, there was a little bit of that.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, when you talk news. about Simple Minds, people forget mm. how good they were. And we mentioned this in our very first podcast about Simple Minds, that yeah. they were something extraordinary that then became a bit of a joke. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah. people think of as this stadium yeah. bloated and, Yeah,
2: band. absolutely. And I love the predecessor to this album, Sons of Fascination, slash sister feelings call and it was a bit of a toss-up between the two because New Gold Dream did feel like a kind of open doors sort of psychologically for me in terms of like being optimistic can be cool. Mm. That kind of idea. Well, did you interview as him
1: and, and, and you were saying that he basically came off as just... Completely on a high and happy and yeah, yeah. And poppy Me light. and my yeah.
2: brother and a friend interviewed Jim for a university newspaper when they toured at the end of, of 1982 promoting that album and it was amazing interviewing Jim, I mean, even meeting him and he was rocking the Double Denim, which is hard That's to right.
1: rock. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you it. can
2: rock Double Denim but Jim could.
1: He, could, he and could and can. And that was a great tour, that fantastic gig. In yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah he just was such an effusive, what he was saying was so effusive, I think he was actually quite tired the day that we interviewed him, but the kind of energy in what he was saying, his philosophy about life and so on, was really engaging and really inspiring in its own way. I'm happy with so, that choice. Yeah, that's my. Yeah,
1: I'm very happy
0: with that choice. I love that album number too.
1: Well, on. you'll find no argument from me. Though <laughs> interestingly... Speaking of which... Speaking of which, my number two album is actually Simple Minds as well, but it's Sons and Fascination <laughs> slash <laughs> Sister Feelings Call. Predecessor, which was released in September 81, produced by Steve Hillage, the guitarist from Gong, hippie mm. band Gong. I couldn't go past this album because I just feel it was so groundbreaking. Uh, songs like In Trance's Mission, uh, Theme for Great Cities, Just Still Love. Uh, Love song, the American League of Nations. They had no choruses. These songs they are kind of <laughs> completely linear. The, the whole mm, of these mm. two albums, it was like one album with a with a gift second album, but it's basically one album
2: and very similar pace as well. Yeah,
1: it, it's like one big kind of mutant Eurodance, you know, track via mm. krautrock, and I think that's the, what the influence was. Mm. Kind of pulsating drums, propulsive bass. Derek Forbes' bass right up in the mix. They're grooves. You know, that's what was really revolutionary mm. about it. And not songs, there's no choruses. It's a very dry sound, but the lyrics are about travel, about love, about experience. And I just felt like when I heard that that I could do that, maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe that's what I'm also referring to, a couple of other albums. I felt like I could possibly do that sort of music. It was atmospheric and it took you places. Mm. And when I, when I listen to it now, I don't know what any of the lyrics are about or what he's talking about. A lot of it's just random words and phrases, but it feels exciting and it feels mm. like he's going somewhere and he's possibly taking you with him.
2: <laughs> it evokes a mood, which yes. is absolutely what lyrics are supposed to do, whether mm. they evoke like a specific concrete meaning is a is a separate kind of question.
1: Mm. And, and I love the production too, I must say it's very dry. It's very clean. And the bass being up front like that, the drums being up front. I think they had two different drummers on the album, but
2: Yeah, Brian McGee, did he leave the band?
1: Yeah, there was there was some sort of mm. issue in between there. But but they had a hit with Love Song, which was the beginning of what we're talking about with, with New Gold Dream. It was a hit in Australia.
0: Yeah. Love song.
1: Once again, doesn't it's got the same bass line running through the entire song. I don't think there's any there's any chord changes on mm. this entire and a weird album. Sequence.
2: <laughs> a weird sequences, yeah, well,
1: like a yeah, fantastic. But, and I, and I love that about it. It's quite experimental, but it's mm. unbelievably catchy. The whole album. So so that's what I've gone for. I hope you don't mind. That <laughs> I've gone for the other album, but uh, Sons and Fascination number two, yeah, one of my all-time favourite albums. Yeah, I've, and Theme for Great Cities still gives me chills. Yeah. Not just because I used to play it in in a band. (laughs) In a band, yeah. I I just (laughs) love that song, yeah.
0: Mm. Graham, you happy with that? I'm very happy with that, both of them. Now we get to the big one. Okay, so my number one album has already been mentioned. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. It was Faith by the Cure.
1: Really? Ah. See, you surprised me again, Graham. Wow.
2: Flabbergasted.
0: Are you? How so? How so? (laughs) You thought it was going to be an Elvis Costello album? I I, kind of had
1: that in mind, yeah.
0: (laughs) I thought that Faith by the Cure was, it was a wonderful sonic work of art that encapsulated the feeling of the time, which yeah. you already spoke about, the dark, gothic and moody, but there's also melodic overtones to it too. Mm. And it kind of made me realise that, that a hook needn't be a vocal melody or a guitar synth line or something. And with primary, I love hearing the bass and the drums together as this kind of repetitive Yeah. Hook. and To me, it's a in really infectious song, and even at the time, I was like, "I don't know why I love listening to this so much." But mm. just, just there's sounds, nothing's really going on. No, no. It just sounds great with all, the, all the, the, the bass lines and um, the, the high bass notes. Yeah, I, I just love I love the Holy Hour, other voices, all cats are grey. And the bass
2: line on on other voices is what gets me. It's a song completely propelled by the bass line, which mm. is really rare. Well certainly rare in music up to that point. Mm. Because I think maybe it was hard to record bass guitars in those days, or like because of the I don't know, like you you would rarely hear a song with an amazing sounding bass mm. prior to that to the to the eighties.
1: I yeah. think it was just the bass was more in the more prominent and <clears throat> more treated as mm. well. There were more effects, yeah, yeah. chorus, and on. So Lange put on the bass of those mm. sorts of ba- albums which hadn't been done before.
0: So this is another sentimental choice. I think if I was stranded on a desert island... This would be the one. This would be the one. Well, I'd, I'd organise some kind of shelter first. And Well, you're going to need electricity. Yeah, yeah. make sure <laughs> I have so the get So
1: get some other stuff organised, yeah. but yeah. I'd get the cure in there. Become a hunter or gatherer,
0: but uh, <laughs> some hunters and collectors. but well, you've got your solar panels with you. Yes, <laughs> that's right. I'd have to spell out the word help on the beach <laughs> in logs. But after all after that, all of that, I yeah. would listen to Faith yeah. and yeah, if I had a record player as yeah. <laughs> well. but yeah, I, I think uh, Faith is one of the uh, desert island discs for me. I should also point out that on previous podcasts, I've spoke about Talking Heads' Remain in Light as being one of those albums. Mm. So it, it was a toss up. But that uh, didn't even make your top five. No, no, no. <laughs> I went with faith. Mm. Good call. No, yeah, no argument yeah, with that. Yeah. That's
1: the first crossover we've had. Yeah, in, and in terms we've of all albums. sort of expressed
2: our fondness for, for the album. So I yeah. think I, I
0: think we all agree that it's the Cure's.
1: I I believe the high it's point. their best album. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, yeah I good choice, a, Graham. Good, good number one. one. Excellent choice. So uh,
2: my number one, and it's somewhat connected to the name of our podcast, is uh, Closer by Joy Division. <laughs> So oh, one so of us, go unknown one of us, somewhat connected. One mm. of us, if not both of us, Mark, we're we're going to have to go there. But for me, I just am completely blown away. By this album, every time I listen to it, it's the only one of the albums in my top five that I discovered retrospectively. So I you just kinda, listened to it recently. Uh, yeah, so 2012 was my first listener. So you know, I was you know, I was in my 40s, and people said, "You've got to hear this Joy Division band. <laughs> They're really good." <laughs> They're... They're great, and, I, and I'd <laughs> I'd resisted. I'd heard people going on about Joy Division, this Joy Division. That. <laughs> I thought, no, I don't need it. Uh-huh. But then I saw this really good film called Control, and I thought, you know what? <laughs> well, that I'm guy's a really go. good actor. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's a really good actor. Maybe there's something in this after all.
1: Here young the
2: so I think the existence of closer sort of filtered through to me in the months after Ian Curtis's death. And I'd heard Love Will Tear Us Apart on, you know, Melbourne radio and so on, but it did take a little while so it was maybe 12 months after the album came out that I finally heard it and it's impossible to separate the death of Ian Curtis from the listening experience.
0: Silence, the doors open wide.
2: Um, and certainly if he hadn't died and if he'd gone on to sing a song about the England football team in 1990, as his <laughs> compadres did <laughs> in the song World in Motion, we might view this album a little bit differently as being, oh, get, get over yourself, Anne. But as a collection of songs, it's an extraordinarily sweet I think. Yeah, the construction of the songs, the spaciousness of the production. Every now and again you'll hear some sound and you'll go, what the hell is that sound? And just the musical journey from atrocity exhibition through to decades at the end. I just think the album is completely mesmerising and just really diverse as well for an album which is characterised or categorised as being just like a bunch of depressing kind of doom laden Mm. stuff. It is a really diverse collection Mm. of songs from the kind of quirky, weird, rhythmic experiment of Atrocity Exhibition where Barney and Peter Hook swap instruments which is one of the reasons why it sounds as, as peculiar as it does, to Isolation
0: Isolation
2: It's the on. hit single, <coughs> so to speak, although it's it, never yeah. released as a single. Given the album artwork, I shouldn't describe it as a stone-cold classic, but I'm going to. I'm
1: <laughs> Look, going to. I'm unsurprisingly going to agree with you as well and put Closer as number one, maybe for different reasons. July 1980, it kind of felt like the end of an era. Mm. Uh, again, produced by Martin Hannett, who really only worked with the Buzzcocks before that. Bit of a ACR, certain ratio, and OMD. Mm. Um, it's It feels like the end... It feels like the end of a conversation, and uh, maybe the post-punk era. You know, mm. um, there's a, the preoccupation with the lyrics about finality, in the end. He talks about that stuff a lot. Mm. Um, I think it's musically far more ambitious than Unknown Pleasures. Yeah, um, it's really hard to separate the production from the songs. What's what's the strength in it? I don't know. <laughs> the, the whole thing is, it, it's got a power, but it's also got a real beauty. Every mm. song. For me, it's also that sort of chilly, suspended kind of edge mm. to it all. It, it kind of predates Gothel or any kind of... It kind of feels like it's moved the conversation into another place, but it's also pulled the curtain down on it at the end. And to me, it's a sort of the template for a lot of things that came after it, which, like I said, maybe goth, a lot of electronic stuff, anything kind of angsty and, you know, it's very, very post-punk in that they were a punk band. They did two albums. They did them very quickly. And when your singer kills himself, you know, a few months before the release of that, then it really is the end of the conversation. And
2: all those bands from, from Interpol, editors, etc., who've been mm. influenced by George Division and continue to be influenced and, yeah, they are really eternal in that yeah. sense.
1: that album is still so listenable now and sounds so current production-wise. Mm. And there's a lot of mystique behind it because of what happened but it's still, it's unfathomable in many ways mm. but there's so many little hints and things in there that obviously... Ian Curtis was going down rapidly, downhill very rapidly and it's it's obviously a tragedy that nobody was able to arrest that decline in time but it's an incredible monument to leave behind and I think it's a real worthy number one. It's one of the greatest albums of the 80s.